podcast. Uh, you are here with myself, Ben Peggs, and uh, Chris Mollard. We are both uh, GB international foilists and actually coach and student. Uh, Chris and I have been working together for a little while. Same seems a bit odd talking about being coach and student. We both represented, but it works quite well and uh, and lifelong friends. Um, and today, I believe this is episode 18 and we have a very uh, special guest. And I will actually leave Chris to make that introduction. Chris, you OK? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. So as Ben mentioned, we've got special guest today, uh, British fencing's Olympic manager, Johnny Davis. Who's joined us, bless him, at 20 past eight in the evening after a workout. The most elusive man in British fencing at the moment, working hard um, or hardly working. But he's, he's joined us today and, uh, and it really is a pleasure to have him on. Johnny, how are things? You all good? Yeah, we're good. You know, it's just uh, I kind of somebody's asking one of my mates was asking me about this today, just over WhatsApp, and I said I just spend my time organising things and then uh, unorganising or reorganising and then start again. And it, it is, it's just yeah, it, it's a really really interesting time if we can stand back and kind of I I kind of have this theory that I run a video camera that I watch what I do. So you know everything I do, I always wonder how would it look when I play it back, and I think that. You know, we talked about that as a family whenever this whole COVID thing started. And it's it's just interesting in terms of I think there's a lot to learn about ourselves and about each other during this. So it kind of it's like you have a, a dual focus. There's the stuff you have to do and then there's the reflective stuff. Um, so the day to day stuff is just not getting attached to stuff that you can't change. The reflective stuff is what can we learn from it? But, you know, I, I've also reverted to the. I think it's the United Nations, you know, what is the, the minimum requirements a human being should have? We've got a roof over our head, we've got food in our belly, we've got a warm bed and we've got love in the house. So do you know what? Actually, we're, we're pretty good compared to what a lot of people are going through. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's great. It's spot on. I think, you know, life is only as complicated as you make it and simplicity is kind of the way forward. And I think there's a there's a lot of doom and gloom on the TV and rightly so. We're living through a really tough time. But at the same time, there are still nuggets of happiness to be found. And when you're surrounded by the right people, um, you know, and as you say, love in the house, it's uh, it's really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as somebody with a, a young child as well. I mean, she's three and a half. You know, I, I miss fencing deeply. And I can't wait to get back to it. But it's been really nice to have all this time at home and be able to see her and really focus on her um, and just family life. So that's really good. And on a side note, I'm also trying to teach myself to juggle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I saw yeah. Your, uh, your your video. I was quite impressed with that. A bit of hand-eye coordination. We love that. <laughs> that wasn't your response when I sent it to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that we're all trying to keep busy in lockdown, that's for sure. But actually, I mean, Johnny, for you, life is is not slowed down if that anything it's 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 accelerated um and and you know what what is a kind of day-to-day -day life for you right now obviously now having the official role as olympic team manager i know you kind of got involved um briefly and were doing a, a great job in the kind of early days um and and it was just as much as you could and giving a lot of your time and now obviously there's a there's a full position for you and you've really kind of run with that it, it seems like workload has probably gone up as well i guess yeah there's a lot of stuff going on so we we have I think we as British fencing and right the way from, you know, the CEO through the staff, through the athletes, we've, I think we've created some really good energy. And with that comes the responsibility to try and deliver that. So you know, my day to day is making sure everything is on track for those athletes still in the running for Tokyo, whether it's Marcus or it's the zonal guys. So that's, you know, as you know, starting, 
you know, I, I make a call every morning, speak to the athletes of training. That's a protocol check-in. So I'm a code of COVID officer for that role. Then um, there's a lot as today. We, you know, we've now found out the actual details of what Budapest looks like. So there's then talking to to the, the Sabreurs about that, talking to the EPS about what we know there, and then talking to the Foilers, obviously. Then we have we're now in we're also into the Paris cycle. So I'm talking to the BOA about um, Paris and about Tokyo. Um, we have the World University Games coming up, so we're starting to plan around that. We've just received our fantastic news of funding from UK Sports. So we have to deliver by uh, tomorrow. We had to deliver a load of um, work around what that looks like, how we're going to spend the funding. Then we have to prepare. Um, we agreed yesterday on three key principles for UK Sport that have to be delivered within a year. So we've just written that up. Um, it just goes on and on and on. And you know, then I'm obviously the bit that I try not to let go of that I enjoy is talking to the athletes. So I've had spoken to four athletes today so you know that that's just that's the bit that kind of energizes me um, and the other stuff is you know we we did a as you know we did that zoom call the other night around um around culture and, and listening and that's a piece that you know we had i think with 50 people on that call so that's about embedding the i think we've gone through a huge cultural change which started before covid but it's given us i always i always look for opportunities what is what's the opportunity to talk to the athletes and as with you, when you talk to the athletes, I get lots of gold dust back, which I can then build on. And I think it's built. I think we're in a we're in a good cultural space around high performance now, which I'm not sure we were before. Um, and with that, it's kind of you know the phrase of it's like trying to change the wheel in a car while driving down the road at 100 miles an hour. I've got to keep my eye on the focus for what we can do to get as many athletes qualified for Tokyo. I've also then got to start making sure those conversations of Paris are alive. So it's just, it, it it actually is, I was talking to Maria earlier, physio, so, you know, it's checking in there as well, support staff. And we just said how lucky we are that we have something that, while it, it keeps us busy, it excites us. I'm sure there's a lot of people sitting, thinking, what does their world look like now? Whereas we have all this amazing stuff. I'm dealing with you guys. I'm dealing with the energy around the athletes. And it's just, it is absolutely fantastic. It is, it's the dream job, but it's, um, you know, as it is at half eight or whatever night it is this week, it's the stuff that you, you do that is part of the role. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's a lot in there that you just said as well, but just for those that don't know, um, so the final Olympic qualifiers that obviously were meant to take place in March of last year have now been announced again, I think, for March of this year. Is that right? So in about yes, six yeah, weeks' time. Yeah, yeah the 11th of March. We just, had, we just had the dates for Budapest changed slightly. 11th to 14th of March is the Sabre event in Budapest. And then we go on to Kazan in Russia and then on to Doha in Qatar, despite the fact you can't get into either of those two countries at the minute. One, one problem at a time, I suppose. We know there are hurdles. We can start jumping over them. So, And then I, I, I'm actually not sure about this, but I think the zonal qualifiers, have they been announced as well or are they still in the No, world? they haven't. Um, I was party to a conversation that we've raised a concern that if at the minute they're supposed to be two weeks after the final foil, foil qualifier, but if somebody gets COVID in in uh, Qatar, they're not going to be ready. I think the I think the African zonals are the twelfth, something like the twelfth of um, of April, and then the Europeans are two days later. But there's a concern that if somebody was to get, say, Marcus doesn't qualify directly, and then he goes into our zonals, then there's a good chance if he contracted COVID in Doha, he wouldn't be able to fence in the zonals. So it's all just, it's all a little bit too close for, 
from I think there was a, probably an alternative way they could have spread it out. The Olympic, the Olympic qualification criteria doesn't have to be completed until it could be as late as early June. Um, so I know like rugby sevens is going to be the last sport that will confirm their places with the BOA, the, the British Olympic Association. Um, so I, I just feel somewhere it probably could have been left a little bit later, but that, that's what we've got at the moment. So we believe the zonals will be a couple of weeks after that, but it's not confirmed and hasn't been officially announced that those will be the, the rescheduled dates. So um, yeah, it's it's a really tough tough situation, isn't it? Because it's kind of best laid plans and and, and that kind of thing. I know the FIE have wanted to, um, you know, through discussions we've had with you, Johnny, wanted to give the athletes plenty of time to prepare and stuff like that, and you know, a kind of noble effort towards getting the competitions up and running again. But the reality of this situation is that nothing ever pans out the the way you plan it, and with COVID and and the situation chopping and changing as much as it does, it it kind of makes it challenging. And um, so, I mean, it sounds like Johnny, you're not that busy at all, really. You're just kind of chilling, putting your feet up i know that um poor poor johnny has got uh, probably 150 missed calls from me um as we do our regular uh, mornings brief um and and what i what i like is you know going back to the whole culture idea that you were talking about is that it kind of starts from the top down um and we've found that over the the, the last year or so um if not longer that there's been you know some significant um changes within within the way kind of people look at professionalism and high performance um and you know certainly lots of young uh, guys and girls coming through onto the squads as well um and kind of getting them to be on board with the idea of what that's about and obviously the senior athletes who are who are current playing their role and it just feels like such a, a great environment and that environment is what kind of fosters success um but i like the fact that you mentioned you know, you're constantly in contact um, with, with the athletes and, and, you know, I can, I can vouch for that. And I think it really means that there's a quite a personal touch, but with that being said, obviously we've got the announcement of UK sport funding, which is just, you know, excellent. What, I mean, firstly, firstly for you, that must've been, you know, a kind of a real point when it was like, yes, you know, kind of, this is exactly what the sport needs. We're really happy with that. What does that look like? And how does that kind of feel for you and the sport? Yeah, it was significant moment. So yeah, I think I feel that it was, um, it was kind of a, a hopefully turning a new a, a, a new a corner in the sense that when I came into the role, there was a lot, understandably, a lot of anger, a lot of confusion over the way the world class program ended. And I think they, there were people within British fencing getting caught in the crossfire, you know, the CEO and various people who weren't really responsible. And I think people reflect now and look at there were, you know, there, there were certain practices and, and the way it was. It just it, it just wasn't as it was it was difficult for everyone. So a lot of the, the athletes then let you know, the athletes who those were in the program either felt um, those ones who were in it felt they didn't like it because of the pressure. Those who weren't in it were, were jealous that they didn't get part of it and were angry that they were outside of it. A lot of those athletes, so some became dependent. Then whenever the money was taken away, they had lost the dependency. They didn't know really how to operate on their own. Those who weren't involved became independent and had forgotten how to work with other people. So, you know, you had these two groups where there was just no, and, and the, the British fencing didn't really have anybody in my space looking after the senior athletes. There was no one who was the voice for senior athletes. So you had this, you know, peak and then, you know, doom and despair of everyone, you know, those who thought they were on a, on a, on a journey for the next four years, all pulled out very last minute, totally unexpected. So it took a couple of years to rebuild that. You know, I, I walked into a couple of very difficult conversations with people, you know, about, you know, you British fencing, you this, you that. And I'm kind of going, you know what, I'm happy to take the, 
happy to take the challenge, but it wasn't me did it. it I, I didn't do it. And also, to be honest, part of the reason I was happy to take the role is I've been that athlete who, you know, I, I, I remember the first and uh, first piece of funding I got was I got £25 handed to me when I got back from <laughs> making my, la- my first 32 in a competition in Paris. You know, so I did it. I, I lived in Germany. I gave up my job for two years. I left my wife back in England. I paid for it. So I understand the journey. So that's why over time we've just tried to, I'm not. I'm not trying to be a friend with the athletes in the sense being my friend, it'll all be all right. But just in professionalism. So, so the the work that there was a lot of work being done with UK sport before I came in, and, and Georgina and Steve Kemp should carry a lot of the credit for that. I came in and added the top piece around performance, and our relationship with UK sport, I'd say, is very good at the minute. The reality is we are not ready for world class funding as much as. You as athletes would love them to give us seven million quid. We're not really set up for it. We just don't have the structures in place. So your question earlier about what we're doing, we're looking how we spend that money and a big portion of that money, a significant portion of that money is about building structures. It's about coaching. We need our coaches to be better. We need to offer more to our coaches because if we don't, our athletes won't get better. That's a fundamental part of the system that we need to fix. So while we're we will have we we marcus mepstead is funded as the one athlete at the minute but then then we have an opportunity to go back in around what they call confirmation to try and get some more athletes funded so we've got to reapply for that but it gives us a solid base it's a a one-year confirmed funding with a a four-year um uh hopefully a four-year um i'm trying to think so i've lost the word confirmed for one year indicative four years so everyone normally you get told you four year cycle everyone's been told the same because of the state of the economy so hopefully this will roll on it means we're not going to we're maybe going to employ one more staff so it's not going to be like throwing money around for new staff and do what happened in the world-class program it's trying to underpin a lot of it trying to underpin a lot of the stuff that's going on and you know the stuff you saw the other night around the grow model and working with athletes trying to get that piece so one of the one of the three things we signed up to yesterday was this commitment, which is what does what does everyone in this organization sign up to at a competition? So, you know, you know, competitions, people turn up and you don't know who that person is and there's somebody's lateness, but it's that whole professional piece, it's about that piece. And we're going to, as we've done with some stuff you've been involved with, we're going to ask the athletes to help write that. So, so, so a lot of it is preparing and the, the funding is focused on, a lot of it is on Paris and beyond. So Paris, Los Angeles, but then my role also is talking to the charities to try and make sure we've got enough money for the teams to make sure that the teams looked after. So it's it's a the lady we deal with is really positive. A lady called Joe Jones, she's been fantastic with us, totally transparent, totally open. Um, I feel very positive about our relationship with them and the honesty of the relationship, which I think is what people were concerned about before. And we're not promising anybody anything. We're very honest about we 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 are still working through what that budget looks like. Um, but for the organisation, the, the 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 for building the structures to be ready to be world class by Paris is kind of the ambition. And then at that point, we go back in and we apply for the big monies. And. It, I, this is a question for me more than anyone else, but uh, is Paris, is the idea that Paris is going ahead at the same time as it would have done? So it would be in three years. Yeah, uh, yeah, everything is, is this, you know, there's been a, there's been a couple of journalists have got hold of as, as journalists, not just UK journalists do. I'm lucky enough, I sit on, on a British Olympic Association call 
we had one last week. There'll be another one next week. So we get um, within the BOA, they're very well placed. There's a there's a couple of different groups and BOA senior staff are involved in those. There's one which is Australia, Canada, uh, America, New Zealand and Great Britain. And they're very central to a lot of the planning. So they all speak regularly. Um, the, 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 the chef de mission is on one of the senior planning organization or senior planning groups within the organization. So, you know, we've had a we had a call last week and they're saying it's going ahead. A lot of the reason it will go ahead is because the IOC need to deliver the medals and they need to deliver the, um, the media. Uh, they need to deliver the broadcast rights. If if they lose, if they don't deliver and they lose those, they could lose them for Paris. They could lose them for Los Angeles. So, you know, it hasn't there's not the uh, FIE, for instance, TSO the timing company haven't renewed the contract with the FIE because they're saying, well, why would we renew it on a four-year cycle when you're not doing anything for a year? So that there's a danger there that you lose that income. So I suspect the, what we're being told about the Olympics is it's definitely going ahead. It will be a very, we know that you have to leave the village within two days of finishing competition. At the minute, you can't get in more than five days before. So the whole experience is going to be very different. You know, ordinarily we'd stay for maybe a week I stayed for the second games. I think I stayed for 11 days after it finished and I had just the best time, biggest party in the world with all the beautiful people. Um, we'd probably fly in, bubble, event, home. So it's it's going to be a very different Olympics. But I think it, I'm, 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 uh, all everything we've been told is it's going ahead and Paris will go ahead the same cycle. That's fascinating. Actually, so you just touched on your story a bit. I wondered if maybe we could talk about your origin story, which is a term I always hated when I heard it on podcast. <laughs> but when I was writing up the notes for talking about your, you know, your background and how you got to be where you are now and your your path and your journey, that's actually the phrase that came to mind that might sum it up the best. So could you maybe talk a bit, like so cycling right back and talk a bit about um, you know, how you got into fencing and what your you know what your kind of activity level was like where you got to and yeah i it was one of those complete um complete pieces of luck to begin with i lived in a like a dormitory town a place called dungannon about 70 80 miles from belfast my dad when i was nine got transferred to belfast um went to a school that fed into a senior school which i went to when i was 12 and they did fencing kind of go well, there you go you know so when i was when i was 12 i was I'd been kicked by, kicked badly by a horse. Um, I fell off a horse and, you know, I was wondering, I broke, I broke this arm three times and this one twice and knocked myself out. Just fell out of the trees and, you know, did things that kids do or, or that I, as I did, I suppose. So anyway, I'd had a bad horse accident lying in, in bed in hospital and on the television in the corner, there was um, the Olympic Games was on and uh, this is 1972. So a lady called Dame Mary Peters won a medal. She won the gold medal. This is this girl from Belfast. So like, you know, it was the old flickery black and white TV. <laughs> and I have no idea why, but I went, I want to do that. And kind of like, you know, what do you want to do? I want to go and do that, what she's doing in the Olympics. So I'd know, I didn't, hadn't fenced. I did a lot of football. I was quite a good, I say so, I was quite a good little football. I was a good runner. Um, I played hockey, did all sorts. I didn't really, I didn't start any fencing until I was uh 13 and actually more significant I didn't have a coach until I was 19 so I kind of we were in Belfast and um it was a, we, we had a, we had a uh, master in charge of fencing Charlie Galt God rest his soul 
who all he could say was Parapost, Parapost, Parapost. That's all he ever said. <laughs> and then, when I went, when I won the the public schools when I was in in, in seven, 17, 16, whatever. First thing he did was take me to the pub. So that was kind of Charlie's role as the, the head of fencing. <laughs> So, so the older boys taught the younger boys, and that's it. And we used to go to competitions, and I was lucky. I medaled at kind of what was then under 14s, under 16, but it, under 18s, you know, it's kind of agricultural. I didn't really have a clue what I was doing. We, I'd ne- literally no one taught us defense. So we just I used to go along, and this is obviously pre cameras, pre videos, you know, and I just watched people and I went, all right, so that, that's what he does. That's Pierre Hart. What does he do? Oh, I'll try that when I go home. And then I'd pin somebody up against the wall and we'd bash away. So kind of the starting that was starting point of that was I, I suppose I started to take it seriously as in I gave up the other sports when I was uh, probably 15, but literally, you know, made it up. And so the rules were, you know, don't ever lose because you're not fit enough because I could do that. So I was always super fit, you know, and things like I could fix my foils, make sure they always work. So kind of things that stuck with me all through my life is, you know, don't ever lose hits and not on the things you can control. I moved then, I moved over to England when I was 18 because I heard that um, this coach had arrived from Poland and this was Yemek. So I came in and I was going to go to Loughborough and then ended up going to um, well, Polly and Kingston just because that, there was fencing there. And I remember I went along to Sal Paul and I, I suppose in the back of this, I'd met my now wife, Katie. At a, we went to Hungary and I met my now wife, Katie, when I was 17. And she was 15 and we kind of something kind of happened there. So this was always, you know, go to London. There's this girl who's pretty attractive and wonderful and you know, <laughs> ended up being my wife. Um, so when I, used, I remember vividly going along to Sal Paul and, you know, in those days it was it was really great. There was, you know, you know, some of these guys, Tony Bartlett, Pierre Harper, Steve Paul, God rest his soul was there. You know, there was a lot. It was really, really hard training. You know, and But I remember it took me nearly a, a year and a month before I could get a lesson over Jemek. I kind of used to just, I, there, was a, there was a little old guy, Vic, who gave a call, or our course, the Hungarian, who used to go, <laughs> and you had to hit him in between the whistles. <laughs> so that, that, so while I was trying to, you know, I kind of had this, I'm going to win, going to go to the Olympics, going to win it. So I had to do all this time and just wait and wait and wait before I could get a chance. And then eventually started with Jemek. And it kind of started to roll from there. And, um, you know, the, you know, the like of Pierre, we buddied up and we would just do extra stuff. We used to run a 5K three nights a week after training along the embankment and used to do extra stuff at the weekend, you know. And again, I, I had to, I suppose the problem is I had to undo what I, the stuff that I didn't know, which was all the kind of agricultural stuff. I then had to learn to fence. So that was pretty tricky. And and at that stage, I only went, in, the, in my last year as an under 20, I went to one competition. Uh, I made a last day at a, a competition in Belgium, but I never I had no junior career in that sense. So that kind of drove me. And ultimately, it probably stopped me being consistently world class. I had world class moments, as, you know, beat lots of good fencers, but I wasn't consistently world class. And I think that probably was part of the problem because it didn't have that grinding. But, you know, the, the, other, the upside of it was, um, I saw these guys with, with coaches and I went, right, you know, now I'm going to have some of that and I'm coming to get <laughs> you. And I kind of I almost on, honestly targeted the people who were around me and wanted to pick them off one at a time. And I ended up then for, so what, no, 1985 was the first year. So I, I was reserved for Los Angeles and I should have gone to Los Angeles. And I, they didn't pick me. And then I came home and went, we should have picked you. So again, I remember having a conversation with Barry Paul going, I've had enough of this. And he was no, he was kind of like, why don't you get even with them? So that drove me on for a few years. 
and then I made the team in 85 and then, you know, rolled on from there. So it, it felt like it was always a, I didn't need any motivation. I was going to prove myself. I was going to beat these people who had had more than I had in fencing. And I just, I loved it. So it, it and I trained like a madman, you know, I trained and actually got myself, I ended up having to take a year off because I got myself so sick with training too hard. But um, yeah, and, and I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. Probably not. But I just always, that's why, you know, I'm always encouraging you guys, be inquisitive, ask what's this, what's that, you know, but I remember vividly standing going, when am I going to get a lesson off of this guy? <laughs> yeah. So it's really I, funny to come full circle with it now. I think that's great. And it's, it's such an amazing story. And um, I, I know what it's like, um, you know, the, the idea with, with Jemek, there's, you know, this grand, grand master and having to kind of wait your turn and go up through the pecking order. And, and, and that's an amazing story. And I mentioned, I know that you mentioned you, uh, you'd had a few accidents as well. Johnny, unfortunately, is a tired accident prone, or maybe he just, you know, accidents find him. I'm not entirely sure. I know he's been knocked off his bike once or twice because he, he, he likes to be a particularly sporty man and hence a lot of triathlons and stuff. And um, for those of you out there that, uh, maybe thought that Chris and I had some quite, uh, quite sharp 5k times. There were nothing in comparison to Johnny um, when he was, he was, uh, well, it was, it was certainly a few years ago, I'm sure, but uh, running 16 minute 5k's is definitely something to, uh, to, 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 you know, it was something that I was chasing for sure. And I think that what's nice is talking about the idea of performance and you have the understanding of performance. You know what that is. You know what that looks like. You know, the resilience that's needed, you know, that you have to stay inquisitive. And I think that's what's amazing about Jemek as a coach is that he continuously is someone that wants to learn. I, I watch him sit in a, in, a, in a World Cup hall until the very final has been played out, taking notes, looking, learning. And, and that, that bleeds into the athletes and, and that motivation, that resilience to kind of go away, see something you've learned, try it again. It doesn't work first time around. Keep trying, keep trying. And that, you know, that can be a really hard grafting process, but one that if you stick with it, can really pay off and i know that you made quite a, a large personal sacrifice to, to move to germany to train talk us through that kind of that whole setup that movement and how that felt yeah that, that was um so i went to i had this dream of going to olympics and i did, I did a really good 87 um i had I had a pull from hell and to get into the last 32 in Lausanne. And I had Roman Koff, five-time world champion, at Guy, world champion, Omnes, Olympic world champion, Chervy third in the world that year, and a guy, Vidmar, a, a Swiss. And I, I got through that. I beat actually beat Romankov and put Romankov out. You know, it was me and him in the last fight. And we had three of us, Pierre, Billy Gosby, and myself in the last 32 that year. So we kind of started to arrive, and we were starting to really get momentum. And then um, I was at this, I was still working. So I was working in the music industry and my kind of, my average day in the music industry was at that stage, I'd maybe have lessons off of GMAC twice a week in uh, in the morning at um, kind of seven. So I'd be up, have my lesson, go to work, get into work for half nine, work for RCA Records. We'd work from, from then all the way through till we finished about half five. Then I'd go, go and train and then I'd go out and see bands in the evening or take people out until maybe two in the morning. And then it started all over again. And it was just, it was brilliant. But eventually the wheels fell off and I got an Epstein-Barr virus. And I got really sick. And I actually, I went from being, for Seoul, I went from being in the one of the individual places to just scraping into the team. So it was a kind of, so I went from, I think I was, you know, I finished 20-something in the, in the world uh, championships that 
previous year and then I just struggled into the team no more so the experience wasn't a good experience I didn't enjoy it. we got it all wrong we were in the village for three weeks before we fenced and it was just it, was, it wasn't a good experience it was too much uh, we weren't very good bottom line as well as we weren't well prepared we were very unprofessional so at that stage I came home and I just said right that's it I've tried it didn't work I've got to get on with my life because I had this option to to make you know a really good career lots of money and travel the world with you know hanging out with rock stars so um I remember actually I went to a football match in, in Northern Ireland. I remember chatting to somebody and a guy I knew, and there's an old guy listening to he says, and he just leaned over and he said, Listen, son, you're a long time retired. Don't give up. You know, so it's just the kind of things you pick up. I was absolutely right. So I came back, kind of regrouped, chatted to Katie. So my wife Katie um went to the Olympics in '84. So she was uh, you know, Katie was one of the top young fencers in the world. She retired when she's 21. She did it the other way around. She started when she's nine. Then she was offered a, a scholarship at St. Martin's Art College. So she kind of opted out because she'd lived in Hungary and she she her feeling was unless she was training full time, she couldn't fulfill her potential. So we kind of had these two, you know, we were doing it together, but there was it, it caused caused a little bit of tension as well. You can imagine two people coming home from a night's training and kind of a bit you know, tense and Gemex pissed you both off or you've pissed them off. It's kind of, you know, there's this tension in the air. Um, somebody's done well, somebody hasn't done well. So anyway, we, we kind of, I just, uh, I then I had to take a year off. I couldn't uh, literally was wiped out. It turns out it's the whole post-viral thing. So I had most of a year, I couldn't do anything. And at that point it was a real, what do I do? So I was, I'd taken on a new job at Island Records, which was my dream. I'm, I'm big into reggae music and all that stuff. So Island Records was like the iconic label. We're working with U2, the whole Bob Marley Foundation. And we'd had previously we'd had, you know, number one records with Rick Astley and Eurythmics and all sorts. So there's loads of stuff going on. There's lot, lot, you know, it's kind of really blessed life, massive expense account, you know, car, traveling, doing whatever we wanted to do. So um at that stage, I went, you know, actually time's running out here. I was a late start, I've got to do this. So so then we I'd been we'd been going to Germany to train in Bonn. At that stage, they had a really, really strong team. They had, you know, Uli Schreck and Alex Cox. So Alex Cox, world champion. Uli Schreck, Olympic medalist. Wolfgang Wienand, world junior medalist. Arne Schmidt, the Epis. The Sabreurs were great. So we'd been back and forward. So I just, you know, we talked about events. He went, right, that's it. I'd been lucky enough that I'd been well paid. And in my role with Ireland Records, I'd asked them to give me sponsorship every year. And I put, so for three years, I put that away in the bank. I didn't spend it because I didn't need to. I was lucky. And then another label, a, a label called GoDiscs, gave me sponsorship. So I, put, I banked all of that because my salary was okay. So I had so I had about 25 grand, I suppose, which is 1989, 90. And I just went, right, you know, in terms of roulette wheel, all in red number seven let's see what happens <laughs> so packed up my car katie stayed at home we, we were we married we had the house you know mortgage and we just kind of worked it out we did the finances worked it out i went over i had a very good friend moritz quiska who was in the german setup and i arrived and he i stayed with him and his family for nearly a year slept upstairs in the in the loft with moritz and his brothers and we had the best time ever and we had the car, so we traveled, you know, every every weekend we go to a competition. The training was brutal, absolutely brutal. Um, I remember one night there were 32, uh, 32 fights to five hits one night on a Wednesday. Wednesday was like a big night. People would come in from France and Belgium. Um, 
we always had the Koreans were there all the time training. The Israelis who were really strong. How know, long was your training trains. session? How do you how do you do thirty two fights? And it must be it was it was brutal. We started that session started at six o'clock and finished about half nine. And if you wanted that night, you could kind of unofficially say you were European champion for the night. But we used to play wow. we used to play football f- five aside football full on forty five minutes five nights a week. On a Wednesday, we'd play for an hour and a half. And it was, it was the Sabreurs and the Foilers. Uh, we did track sessions. They had weights room. This is when they, the whole German thing was just the power, that they, 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 the way they fenced was just so physically strong. And technically, they're doing all of the, 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 the stuff on the shoulders and the backs. And it, it was just amazing. And, and they welcomed me in. I ended up fencing for their team in the German championships. Um, you know, they gave me equipment and they helped me with my travel. And it was it was great. So did that for I got you know all my physio when I was there. They taped me up every night. They did all of that. They, it was it was just brilliant. They welcomed us in, and um, did that right the way through to Barcelona. And then came home and kind of had to rebuild everything from there. You know, so it was a coming home was a very sobering experience. You know, it was great. I remember sitting in a I got a job in the music industry that had lined up, and I remember sitting in a big meeting with some kind of very powerful inverted commas people and somebody said oh you know johnny's just come back for the olympics and this exec looked over and he went really that was it you know kind of done you know (laughs) olympic fencer done so there was a real that was very difficult i've got to say that was a very very difficult period sure and was that so was that when you kind of stopped fencing competitively um i i decided i was going to go for for when i looked at that image about one to win the olympics i said i want to go to three i like why you know 12 years old where did this i had no idea so I, i i wanted to do three and I think the fact that I didn't get selected for Los Angeles when I genuinely feel I should have been selected made me go, I'm going to go again. So I came back and I took a bit of a break and then I started to train again for what would have been Atlanta. But it just wasn't fair on Katie. It wasn't, you know, I also, I'd, I'd been able to, with the amount of training I did, what I did was I, I competed domestically and did one international and the results were great. I kind of won everything at home and had a good result into that. And then literally overnight, the wheels fell off. Literally, I couldn't hit a barn door because I think you kind of have about six months in the tank and then it just ran out. And then at that point, I went, I just, it's too selfish of me. And actually, I don't think unless I move back to Germany to that intensity and that level, I went back and I fenced for born in the German championships and I was absolute rubbish. You know, I really, I, I, I I was awful because I just couldn't, I was kind of on the B road when I'd been used to being on the motorway and I just couldn't do it. So at that point you go, do I want to be an embarrassment as, you know, not being able to do this properly. And um, so I kind of, that's it. I said, okay, that, that I'm going to reluctantly. Then I, I was doing lots of sport and I you know, got into my triathlons and bits and pieces, but officially, um, I officially retired after um, Barcelona and then had a bit of a play at it until I think about January or February of that year, of the, sorry, of the next season. And then I remember saying to Tomek, who was working with Tomek at that time, he just said, this isn't working. I just can't do this. Right. OK. So actually, there are, that's very interesting, actually. But there are two questions I want to ask you off of that. So and I'll ask them at the same time. <laughs> One, what do you think made a difference for you as an athlete, like either in your training or your mindset or something like kind of, you know, what set you apart? And the other one is based on what you've learned, beginning, middle and end of your kind of competitive career, what is there one thing that you might recommend to fencers that are either what well, one thing you might recommend to fencers? I was going to say looking to improve, but it doesn't have to be on looking to improve. It might I, be on 
how to manage, you know, the end of a career or something. I, well, I think the, the, the post-career piece is, is a major piece of work. You know, I think that's, um, there's, you know, there's, it's, it's a real piece that needs to be managed properly. I think if, if you, you know, it, if the message to the younger self would be commit properly. So I went through, I had, I literally was having, you know, I had this kind of just amazing life whereby I would literally have had a number one record. I remember coming home to, to Belfast and, uh, going out to the pub, you know, meeting a couple of guests. Somebody say, what have you been up to? And I go, oh, well, just a number one Rick Astley. And I was in Cuba last weekend. I'm doing this and doing that. And people would go, oh, check you, you know. And I was kind of going, no, 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 I'm just, I'm just telling you what I'm doing. But the reality was I ran out of, I ran out of space. The rope, the rope was, you know, the rope was too strained on that. They did too much. I think that if I had gone, there's a, there's a, a very good friend of mine, teammate Billy Gosby, went to live in Germany before the Seoul Olympics. Billy made the final, it was the Martini. And I should have probably gone then. Pierre went as well there. I should have gone then and I left it. I, I was, because I had so much going on. I was, I didn't want to give up the music. If I'd, I think if I'd committed, I was, I was totally committed. You know, this was like from 12 years old, this was what I was going to do. But I was still allowed myself to be distracted because I had this wonderful other thing going on. Looking back on it, I'd go, what difference would a year have made? You know, I really should have probably committed a year earlier. If, and actually the biggest regret of it all was that I got sick that year. That probably took, I said it took me a season and a half to get back. I didn't actually make the team in 86 because I, I was in such bad shape. And I think that stopped the, 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 the what was the, the curve of me going to where, getting to where I wanted to get to. I went from, I remember in, in Lausanne being, in, you know, one, two with China and with somebody else I won four out of four in the team event it was absolutely flying but the, it just then I lost a year and I think that was because I just did too much I didn't I didn't allow my body to rest I didn't allow my body to recover I was um, that that's the, the message to myself would be learn to stand back learn to commit to the the, the task for a period of time and then be prepared to move on so the decision to retire was the right decision because I didn't want to just, you know, be a sad old fencer. You know, people say, "Why well, you fence the veterans?" And you go, "No, I couldn't. I just couldn't." Um, so I think that that would be the learn. Commit totally for that period, and then when you're done, accept you're done, and enjoy what you've done, and then regroup and move on. It's really interesting that you talk about that. I mean, I, I've just, um, you know, I, I work with Jonathan Katz, a psychologist that we actually had on the podcast recently, who's part of the ADP, and who Johnny, I'm sure you know very well. And, you know, yeah. he talked about the idea that actually elite athletes find it exceptionally hard to stay motivated um, after they've seen such the dizzying heights of the senior world champs, the Olympic Games, the European champs, that kind of stuff. And actually, I can kind of understand exactly what you mean by being in Bonn. And, and as you say, you know, being on the B road instead of the, the motorway, it's an incredibly challenging um, thing because you, f you find that even though you're still doing what you enjoy, you just know the adrenaline buzz of having been to Olympic Games or a World Championships and just knowing that's exactly where you want to be at. And I mean, I know so much for so for you, obviously, the Olympic Games are such a huge part of your life, you know, sitting in that in that hospital bed. I know I'm sure people I'm sure you won't mind mentioning um, Johnny has the Olympic rings on his on his uh, on his bicep. And uh, what I, what I what I love about Johnny's response to that in a, in, in a lot of athletes have the Olympic rings um, on their on their bicep um, and I think it's a great place to have it and I, and I think it's, it's it's really cool I personally like it and I said but what do you what, what happens you know if somebody ever questions that and they oh well you know why why have you got that and Johnny's response in a very confident but not arrogant way was 
because I can. And you know what, for me, that summed it up, which is I trained so hard. I put everything into this. I, you know, I committed to moving abroad and, and no, and actually that learning cycle of going through, you know, dabbling and, and kind of trying to burn the candle at both ends to right, I'm really going to go for this. It shows the sacrifice. And actually, you know what, you, you then want, you want to be able to display that you want to have that special moment in your life, like relived and replayed. And it must be quite a, a, hum, a humbling and also slightly sad thing. When, as you say, you get that bump back to reality, which is, you know, you walk into a room and some people just really don't care that you're an athlete and that you're Olympian. And, and I know certainly for me in, in, and I say this in inverted commas, getting towards the twilight end of my career um, or, or towards the, the slightly, you know, sm smaller days of my career that actually I will face that reality. And, and for me, being involved in coaching is kind of an exciting thing because it still keeps me in the sport and you still get that buzz. But I know that can be very, very challenging and I'm, I'm kind of excited, but also um, you know, wanting to understand how to deal with that as, as, as I get older. But I wanted to touch briefly back on, on the, this, this whole music career I, thing that you've had. Can I just say something really quickly on what you just said? Sure. I think it's interesting that you talk about Twilight, like your career and like, you know, kind of getting to a certain point. You and I are the same age, right? We're only 30. Sure. And like, you know, we're pretty healthy individuals. We, we, un yeah. we understand athleticism you know you you shared the trained podcast with me the other day which i thought was awesome and i've been like binge listening to it and it, sure. it you know there are you know the five facets of training they talk about i've heard loads of people talk about that you know kind of nutrition sleep recovery um you know uh, movement and well-being and things and all like, all these other things i think you know being a 30 year old athlete now is not what being a 30 year old athlete i agree five years, 10 years, 15, even, you know, because these increments are so small. So I wouldn't be surprised if we saw international athletes going for longer, you know, like Richard, how old is, how old is Richard now? So Keith, uh, 36, you know, 37. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Keith, you know, as well. I'm, okay. So Keith, Keith isn't on the squad at the moment, but you know, Keith is late thirties and he's still doing an incredible job, you know, like domestically, he can kick most people's asses. I really wouldn't be surprised if we suddenly, if we saw people, Kind of in their in their mid to late thirties, you know, still still being. You look at you look at if it's interesting if you look at the men's foil top twenty in the world, you have Lepeshu thirty seven, you have Kassara thirty five, I think you've Richard, you know who who they, they, these guys are. Made. You're absolutely right. In our day, you know, we, we were joking about this the other day. We were um, we had a sponsorship from Mars for one of the Olympics. <laughs> and they used to come in at the old Leon Paul Center and they'd set up a box of Mars bars. So you'd come in, I'd come from work, I was tired. You'd eat a Mars bar and you'd bash away and then you'd get the spike and you'd drop and then you'd go and have another Mars bar. And you'd have like four Mars bars. And then on the way home, what would you do? You'd go and have a kebab and probably because I was living living close to Robert Nigel's, we'd go to the pub for a couple of pints. You know, that, that was, my, my journey used to be, you know, when I was a student, I'd, I'd get, take me half an hour to get to, walk to the station in Surbiton. Then I'd get the train into um, Victoria, which is 40 minutes. I'd walk over the, the bridge to Pimlico. I'd bash away, fence away. Then I would go, probably go and get a drink or something. Like then I'd get a kebab at, at the Turkish place on the way home. Then I'd walk back over the bridge. Then I'd get in the train. Then I'd get off the train. By this stage, it's kind of 10, 30, quarter, 11. Then I'd walk in, walk up to my student accommodation. Then I would go and I'd do a boil in the bag, rice and a curry or something. And then you'd do it the next day. And I think like, we've all done that, go, haven't we? This, this. It's just mad. But, but, yeah, but, but you know, that's, that, was, that, was, that was up until probably... 
second year as in the senior team. That was kind of what life was, you know. Before then, I went then, training, I had it was no, mad. We, the stuff that we the stuff we now know is is just a, a different level. We we no I, idea. You've hit the nail on the head. It's kind of stuff we now know because you know it, what's becoming more clearer and clearer to me is even something like sleep. You know, we all know how fundamental sleep is now. But even as recent as like five years ago, it wasn't understood, you know, the importance of sleep. It was understood in inverted commas, but not, not the it wasn't same way. Prioritized. It, it, it wasn't prioritised. It wasn't a priority. Yeah, absolutely. And but I think but everything has changed. Yeah. Uh, for me, that what's really interesting, and I, I, lo- I love this, because you're right, like the times have changed so, so dramatically. And the things that we now know, um, you know, what I love is the fact that, you know, s- smoking back in the day was really good for for your for your lungs and, and to clear your throat and and coca-cola had cocaine in it and if we I do just, the things just that... on that ben i've got to say billy gosby who's my roommate bill bill who was you know a say made he was fourth and then martini good real world-class fencer and he used to buy at the airport he used to buy two packets of fags as we left <laughs> to take the competition and then he would throw what he didn't smoke away on the way back home. And that was because that's what he just did, you know, because like, you know, how many fags get me through? It was like, and, and I'd say probably 50% of the fencers did in those days. But actually, and you still probably see some 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 athletes doing that now. And and I think that sports yeah. science has gone gone forward and, and really helped us all learn more. And but also we can we can I think as well potentially overcalculate it to the point where you get the real paralysis through analysis kind of thing. So I think there's a balance. But touching back on the the point of of what Chris was saying with there's 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 you know the twilight of my career i suppose different to both of you because um i, I probably sit more on on your wife's side uh, katie um uh, we, and and it's kind of from my point of view i i started what um, you said with my wife tell me about that <laughs> <laughs> so you know katie started when she was really young and, and she went to the games very early um and i suppose for both of you you started what again in inverted commas what would be considered late probably a bit like james williams who went to the olympic games started fencing when he was 17 i started with fencing when i was 10 and i left school at 16 and became a, a full-time fencer when i was 16 right so i've been full-time training for for over 10 years close to 14 15 years and what's really interesting is that athletes think about and i certainly do think about their career and their, their time span almost in olympic games and so you think yep. about uh, the time is like right the next four years so if i think about when i first started fencing at 10 years old and i went full-time at 16 and i'm now 30 and if i think i've got another four years until the next olympic games in 2024 i'll be 34 it's going to be a high high likelihood i won't do the next one because there are other things in life like putting a roof over my head and actually having a savings account and potentially getting married and having kids and so so what i mean is that i'm in the twilight of my career but that's still four or five years which is to, to some people people don't even think that far ahead no, that's no, not no, even no. and that's short-term planning for us that's not yeah. that's not long-term and so that's what i kind of mean by that but but you're right everyone kind of measures things differently and that's we're, we're, right, freaks, how it, you know, we're, we're addicts you know the reality is the the, the upside of this sport and and this the, the sport is we are blessed. We, we have found something as human beings that excites us, that means something to us, takes us to another level. It means we, you know, it's, it's better than being addicted to cocaine or chasing somebody else's wife or, or alcohol or whatever. You know, it's, it, is, it is an addiction, but it's a healthy addiction. And if we, as long as we feed it properly and nurture it, it takes us to a good place. The problem is when you, when you are looking to come out the other side you still have an addiction you know so physically if you stop training you may have a heart attack because you're 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 you know steve redgrave had to detrain for 18 months after yeah. his last medal because your heart atrophies and, and you can do so there's all that physical evidence psychologically 
it's you know to me it's it's you know, commit to the moment so that you finish with no regrets that's kind of and the, the for me lots of things i'd love to have started earlier could i have been an even better fencer if i'd learned to fence properly yes <laughs> da, 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 all that stuff but actually you know what the one thing i wanted to do was i wanted to finish that olympic games knowing that i had done everything i could to win i was in super shape i had committed to it i'd done everything i'd i'd put it all out there and i remember the moment i lost the fight and i was out and that was it that, that so you know what that i remember the hit i remember the mistake i made and from there i lost the fight but actually i come home going you know what finished top 20 in the world from where i started that's okay. It's not where I wanted to be. But the question is, could I have done anything more? And if I hadn't moved to Germany, the answer would have been no, because I needed to explore that. Again, looking back, I should have done it earlier. I should have done, you know, various things. But I think that's the key is just, you know, when when you're going to finish, the, as the old guy said to me, you're a long time retired. You know, it's going to come. It's going to hit us all at some stage. And then, you know, an eye to the transition is important. But just try and feel wherever wherever you are, wherever you get to, just feel that you've had a go. You've really had a go and you've done what you can. And at least that there's a huge sense of satisfaction and and contentment as you get older. You know, people say to me, you know, there's people who say, you know, the people who know about sport will say, how did you do at the Olympics? The people who just are want to say, oh, you went to Olympics. How was that? But the people who know will say, how did you do? How did you do? And then at that point you go, well, actually, if I was 19th in the world, did I fail or did I win? And then that's another whole conversation with yourself, you know. So if somebody had said to me, you're going to finish in the top 20 at the Olympics, when I was that kid lying in the bed, I'd have gone, that's brilliant. At that moment, I was going, that's a disaster because I genuinely thought I could win a medal. Johnny Willis is the same thing about you retired for a long time. So I find that fascinating. But yeah, sorry, Chris. Yeah. And what I was just going to say is what, what I think what you've mentioned as well is really interesting in that, you know, there's so much that I've heard come out recently about doing the work, putting in the work. You know, actually what you say about committing to the moment is what my sports psychologist said the first time I ever spoke to him. Um, you know, I'd just come off the back of a really bad nationals where I'd lost 5 4 5 4 and I thought, that's not a sign. Something's going on in my head. <laughs> I don't know what it is. But, uh, and, you know, he said the same thing. I think I was 26, 27 at the time. And he said, look, I mean, you know, when does a fencer peak? He's not a fencer, he's a cricketer. And he said, uh, it was like, you know, kind of around the age of 30. He said, well, if you want to make something of it, now's, you know, now's the time. You've got to go for it. But the, what, the reason I mention that is because the hard work comes in day in, day out. So that by the time you get to competition, that's the you know that's the easy bit you don't you don't have to worry really you know you can't no. do anything about your fitness at that point all you can all you can do is look back in the knowledge that you've done everything you could you mm. might have hated it but it means that on that day you can enjoy every moment and really put everything you have into it and that's an amazing feeling that you know only an athlete can give themselves yeah mm. completely I, I think it's a great point to touch on absolutely and you know it's uh, and that that passion that you know that's what for me is the it is as Johnny said is having that thing in your life that that means the the world to you and more that you're going after. Um, and, and I, I, I for me obviously we're talking about the end of, of, of careers at, at some point, and you know I, I'm really excited to live the next chapter because I don't leave fencing. I, I and a bit like Johnny now involved as the, as the squad manager, you know you're still involved in fencing again, so you get a slightly different buzz in another way, and I, I'm really excited to see where that takes me but you know through covid and people being locked down take being taken away from the their passions i suppose what's 
become very prevalent is the idea of mental health and looking after one's mental health. And I think this this also is a wake up call to those that maybe haven't found their passion or their purpose in inverted commas to to go out there and look for things. But that doesn't just mean that having one passion kind of is standalone. You have to have that. And when it's not there, you know, you're not in a good place because you obviously are very passionate about music. And that was part of of your career. In fact, I, I only really learned about this with Johnny when we were when we were at the Anaheim uh, Grand Prix, which was cancelled. And um, we were all out there and literally the day before, I remember we were going for a nice little recovery walk, myself and Marcus and, and, and the physio Maria has mentioned, uh, down this beach is like our kind of recovery bin training. The competition, I think the, the training um, centre was open the next day for us to be able to do weapons control. We are doing this walk down a beach and there was a lovely sunset and we took a lovely photo of it and we got a phone call to say that the, uh, the competition was cancelled. In that moment, we were devastated, but at the same mm-hmm. time thinking, actually, we're still in this amazing place. And we suddenly realized that, you know what, we we can't get home uh, until Monday and we've got the whole weekend and we can't stay around people and we can't. So we decided to move our Airbnb uh, to somewhere that was a little more remote because we didn't want to be in the, with the crowds and things like that. We didn't want to bring COVID home, um, considering how prevalent it was starting to become. So we, we found this Airbnb a little bit outside the city and it just so happened to be very close to, to Joshua Tree National Park. And so we thought, well, what activities can we do for the weekend? We've got nothing else to do stuck in, in this place. And I say stuck, being stuck in LA is not a problem, but being stuck, we couldn't hit the main city. What can we do? And so we decided just to go for a little walk around Joshua Tree National Park. And it was starting to get a little bit later in the evening and, and we could see the stars and it was amazing. And, and actually, I remember um, Johnny putting putting you two on, blaring out the, uh, the, the the car. And it was a great moment. We all sat there looking at the stars in the middle of this amazing place and, and, and the world kind of felt great. And, and, and it was kind of starting to come out about the, the music side of things that you've been involved in. And, and it just, it kind of really showed me that you're very multifaceted and actually athletes are and you do have another passion in life kind of talk us through that and that other side that people don't know about you yeah that that was that was a great moment we're dancing around to uh you know to, to the joshua tree album in the yeah. joshua tree national park and you, that's a that's a that's a real that's a really good kind of focus on this is what this this sport gives us uh you know i so my, my history of music was very simple i grew up in belfast in what were pretty dark times, you know, there was a lot of the, the, it was a bad, it was a difficult place, you know, people were being shot and people were being blown up and, you know, my dad's car was blown up and, you know, some of the friends of ours could kill. It's just awful. It's just really dark. So as a, as a kid, I was into music and suddenly when I was 16, this thing happened called punk music. I was like, wow, you know, wow, that's good. So, you know, the bands, the, the, all the, this, this, I like, I love subcultures. I studied subcultures for my dissertation. So I like the outsider. I like, you know, fashion. I like, I, I love people. So subcultures become the norm and it's, it's watching subcultures grow. So, you know, big into old alternative music and stuff. So I kind of got really fixated with particularly the band The Clash, you know, because it wasn't the punk thing kind of washed over quite quickly, but introduced me to reggae music and country music and all sorts of stuff. I used to go into my first gig I ever went to was ACDC. And then, you know, at, at, there was, at that stage, Belfast, it's kind of, you know, it was it was so sectarian, it's divided, but you know, we used to get together in a real dingy, dangerous part of town on Saturday night where all the bands would play. And it didn't matter what colour, creed, you know, whatever. Somebody said, you know, there's no, you don't see an advert in the paper saying wanted, you know, Protestant bass player or Catholic bass player, it didn't <laughs> matter. Whereas in those days it was sectarian lines, you know, and, and you didn't go there and, you, you know, you, you just didn't go to those places. But this was so... So then I came to England and that and I you know started to build up a real record collection. The energy that came around that whole punk thing, it just blew the lid off it. It blew the lid off the rules. I was I'm somebody who believes that rules 
are really important, but that I think is really important that you challenge. No, no one should give should should give you rules to abide to unless they then show the values behind why they can. So you, no one should just tell you do do what I say if they don't live up to it. So I was quite it was quite a challenging kid at school, and and uh, you know I, I started all this travel stuff, you know, and, and, and you know, went off and travelled with fencing. And then I came work came to work when I was working in um, when I was at college the weekends that I wasn't fencing to try and get some money. I there's a store that used to be on the King's Road in London called Robot, which was um, a fashion store which we did shoes and clothes. And if you look at there's a book The Clash before and after, the clothes in there are all from that store. So I kind of knew about this store, and I used to buy my save up my pennies to buy my shoes. I just walked in one day saying, "Can I have a job?" So they gave me a Saturday job. Over time, I became the manager of the store. We opened up another man, other shop in Covent Garden. We opened up a store in Japan. Da, da. And then from that, so we used to do, what I used to do was all the bands used to come in. Like Paul Weller used to come in. And in those days, you had to sign your, your credit card. And rather than put the money through, I used to keep it because I got a signature, you know. So eventually the boss would go, Did Paul Weller not pay for those shoes? And you have to worry about, you know. So we, so we had this kind of live situation. We were doing... Uh, the bands would go on tour, we would do suits for them and we'd do the shoes. If I look through, you know, if you look through even on social media, there's a, there's a company called Cox's who now are putting all the shoes up and it's all references. And I must have sold probably half of those shoes to them. So that was great. So off the back of that, then all the record companies used to come in and uh, all the guys from the record companies used to come in and maybe the managers. And eventually, so I used to do a lot. I like bartering. I think that, the, you know, that, that, um, you know, that if I could live in a world of bartering, that would be for me. So I used to swap clothes for albums and tickets. You did very well in China when we went to the market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I, yeah, yeah. Capitalism, <laughs> I like a version of it. So, so we used to have all the, all the record companies were in West London. We were on King's Road, very trendy. Um, all the guys used to come in, artists, managers, record companies, agents. And we just kind of constantly swapping, you know, so I, I would swap them. Um, shoes and discount them, whatever. And eventually, somebody just offered me a job one day and said, Do you want to come work in the music industry? I went, Yeah, I'll have a go at that. So I went off, I worked for an independent company, and my work, my job was to um, get the bands onto radio and television. In those days, Radio One was like the Bible. You know, you had to get onto Radio One, and then you had Top of the Pops and the Tube and all those things. So we were what they call pluggers. So, you know, we had to we had to take people out and we had to persuade them why to play my record rather than somebody else's. And then, you know, then whenever the records were getting played on the radio, the marketing guys would then spend the money to promote it. And then you get success and then they get on television. Da, da. So it was just, it's like I was getting paid a lot of money for just having the best time. The rules were, <laughs> the rules were there was no rules. It was the Wild West, you know, in those days. It was, it was complete madness, complete chaos. So I did that for, I, I did that. Then I got a job at RCA and we had a great time. We had, um, you know, Rick Astley, who's come back around again, was like the first big superstar we had, number one record. I remember, I remember my wife coming home one day. We had a little flat in, um, in Finsbury Park and Rick was doing, in those days, Capital Radio used to do big outdoor events. And we were between an interview and that. So we said to Rick, come on, we'll go home and get a cup of tea. So he was like this, you know, superstar. I remember Katie walking in and going, okay, this is Rick. Rick is Katie. She's going, Rick Ashley sitting on our sofa. And I was like, you know, it was just normal, that sort of stuff. But went on, worked through, um, I worked for RCA. We'd, we had a lot of success with the like of Eurythmics. And, and uh, this is 80, 
84, 85, 86. And then over time, I then went and worked at Ireland and with U2, a great couple of years. We didn't have any releases, but we had a couple of big tours. So I would take 30 people to Amsterdam for the night and 30 people to Paris. And, you know, expense account. I, I kind of, I remember in those days at Island Records, I had to, I had a expense account, I had to spend five grand a month on uh, expenses. And if I didn't, they'd go, you're not doing your job properly. So we just lived up and down the <laughs> road. So kind of like, you know, just friends, what are you doing tonight? Come on, go. But it was just the way it was, you know, big car, so on and so forth. So it all moved on. There were lots of really nice crossovers. I ended up, uh, we, I then worked independently for a while. And then I ended up working in, um, uh, when we moved back to Northern Ireland, we decided, you know, to make it move back for family reasons. Um, and then I set up an independent company. But I worked with, for instance, um, Iron Maiden. So Bruce Dickinson sponsored me when he had his fencing company. And then I also promoted his band. And they're just surreal moments. Remember, we went to Israel to do a thing for Top of the Pops, which was the big show. And it was at that stage, somebody had, you two had done a piece on the runway at LA airport. Okay. And that, that was like the biggest thing. And then somebody else had done something amazing that cost even more money. So the tour man, the manager of um, a fantastic guy called Rod Smallwood, who managed Iron Maiden, was big into his history. So they were going to Tel Aviv to do a gig on the Friday night. And then on the Sunday at 001, we went up the Masada mountain, which is this amazing historical mountain where, you know, it was yeah. the first battle of da-da-da, whatever. So we had this scenario where we had people carrying all the equipment up for Iron Maiden to play on the top of Masada mountain. We had two helicopters, which came from who were ex-Secret Service guys flying the helicopters filming it. And you kind of go, this is, I'm getting paid to do this. And then on the way home, we decided to stop and swim in the Red Sea. And if you lie, Beautiful. if you lie in the dead, sorry, the dead sea, when you lie in the dead sea, and these guys, you know, the guys in maiden with long hair, and suddenly you look around, you're lying, and you're going, I'm in the, the dead sea with the guys who are maiden whose hair looks like a big dandelion, because every one of the hairs are <laughs> How did this happen? So it was just, it, it was, yeah, and then, then I set up my own business. I worked in publishing, and we set up, a, we had a record label as well. We had, you know, we did a lot of work with the guys from Snow Patrol, and we had, um, yeah, we, we had, the com that company, which I was just an employee, or I was a, I was a consultant, or we had Coldplay, we had um, Robbie Williams, we had, you know, Elvis, we had big, big, big acts. But, you know, we were going to Glastonbury, we were flying people to, I remember going to, uh, flying somebody to New York just to sign a record contract. <laughs> you know, like, it was just, it was brilliant. It was really good. It was, the, the downside is the music industry is ruthless. I always say the difference is, in the music industry, they'll say, there's the knife, I'm going to stick it in your back. They'll tell you, because that's just the way it is. So we, I moved back to Northern Ireland in 96 because um, we had Christy, my son had been born, and Katie had a business and had a business. And it was just, it was just, it was, it, it, we, we weren't going to cope, we weren't going to survive. So we made a bigger decision, try and move back here. And then I set up a business here. And then for 10 years, I traveled to London for three days a week. And at that stage, I had no connection with fencing whatsoever. And then I evolved that music company whenever Napster came and, and the whole changes around streaming. Um, there was less money in the business and being further from London, you had less to spend for because it was more centralized, New York, London, LA. And then we started to evolve into a sports management company. And that's what we have done up until COVID came along. And you guys did the Sheffield uh, European Champs, didn't you, through that company? Yeah, we organised. We you know we organised the things like the World Boccia Cup before the um, before the Olympics. We organised Sheffield 
um, you know, great. A similar thing. It's people. It's um, you know, it's 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 not sitting in an office. It's it's a, it's a long you know long hours. It's it kind of resilient. But yeah, just great. So kind of it's all everything I do is just as I suppose this role now is what is my role? It's about people, you know. So the music was great. And and I, you know, I still to this day, music is a big, big thing for me. If you know the days I, I recognize the days that I don't listen to music are the days I don't feel so energized. And when I don't feel energized, I don't listen to music, whereas I break it the other way. When I listen to music, I feel energized. And because I'm energized, I listen to music. So it's the yeah, kind yeah. of, you know, it, it's a it's a simple for me. I'll go and, you know, just lock myself in the room and turn up the music and dance by myself for an hour. I know it's a terrible vision, but it does happen. <laughs> um, but Amazing. yeah, so 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 it's been a, it's and, and I've, I've you know experiences in music. So I've I've kind of just been around really successful people was interesting, you know. So whenever if one of the fences is having a stroke and kind of being difficult you go do you know what i've had to drag rock stars out of all sorts <laughs> of places and all sorts of incidences and had to get them you know onto television and sober them up or do whatever you know and and egos that people who have sold millions of records so if one of you guys is having a bit of a you know a, a, a famous five minutes you go yeah whatever it's you know, nothing wrong <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. And a true, truly in, in, incredible story to kind of hear about that as well. I have three quick fire questions. If you're, if you're feeling yeah. quick enough for these, yeah, yeah. Um, what are, what are uh, basically is what are your favorite moments, memories from, uh, from fencing, uh, from the music industry and from, uh, being the, the team, team GB manager. Um, fencing. I loved fencing in the team. And I remember fencing the Italian team in the world championships in I'm going to say 89 was Barella, Numa, uh, Cerioni, and Cipressa. Oh, gold medal and, names. And I won four out of four in that match. So I remember that. Amazing. That was that was just it was just that was not, I, I suppose you know, it making your first Olympics, making your first senior result, blah blah. But that that specific one, and again, that was that the regret with that was that was the point at which I kind of felt I should have been at before I got sick. But yeah, mm -hmm. that was really good. Music industry. Um, I, so I many think, yeah there were lots I think we had um, U2 did a tour and they did um, they played we, we travelled Europe with them for a while and I think some of those moments were you know being that close to see I suppose, I suppose being on the inside of actually you know like talking to the band around them going on stage and then at one stage I flew with them back home from a gig and you know, that, that, that I learned I wasn't awestruck, but I was just impressed. And again, that I think taught me a lot about uh, managing people and saying that was that was just the most amazing. That that whether you like the music or lot or not, the people made that whole unit, and it's one of the big most successful thing. And um, I do like the music as well that they make. So that that was phenomenal. That was really close. I felt really privileged to be part of that. And then in terms of my, my manager's role, I've had lots of really good moments. I was really, I was really privileged to be close to Richard when he was winning, I, you know, doing really well. And in China, I was really privileged to be close to Marcus. To be honest, I don't, I hope we haven't had the biggest moment yet. I think there's more to come. And, you know, it's cliche, but I genuinely, I, my, the, the thing that I like most is just being with the athletes, being able to talk with the athletes. And actually what's more important to me are the small victories because if I can get you guys to a happier place, provide you with a platform and uh, that you're able to be more focused 
and actually what that does is means then I can look at you and go, well, you've got no excuses, you know. So there's a there's a there's a selfishness in the management of it. But um there, there's been lots of those, you know, at the moments the like of the the pieces around you talked about Joshua, you know, the Joshua National Park. The journey around the competitions are amazing. But this, this is but we've been really blessed. But the um yeah, I, I think there's been lots of peaks, but there's there's more to come. I feel there's a lot more to come in fencing yet, so I'm kind of not going to give him a big moment on that. Just no, on, perfect. On, sorry, on, on the team manager role. So I can happily close my career and I can happily close the music industry, but this one is still open and a long way to run. Absolutely, and that's the thing when they, they say the, the journey is better than destination. That's uh, probably the oh, yeah, absolutely. way to absolutely. sum that up. Well, look, yeah. Johnny, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much for, for, for joining us. I know, um, I know it's late in the evening and you've had a busy day, um, but it's, it's been a lot of fun. And as I say, we could talk to you all evening, um, but we're just, we're going to bring things to a close, a few of our usual things. Um, so guys, please subscribe um, and, and, and follow us on, on anything, on any platform that you, uh, that you get your podcasts in. Um, and uh, on Twitter, we are at Fenced In uh, Podcast. Um, I think that's everything. I may have got that all wrong, Chris. Do you want to, do you want to step in? Yeah, we're actually also now on Instagram, also at Fenced In Podcast. I don't know if you know about this. I did it the other day very quickly. <laughs> I did. I did. I saw your juggling video card. It was great. It's another another account that uh, I potentially have to, to look after and manage, although you're doing a great job of it. So, um, so joining, yeah. it as, joining it as we speak. There you go. Perfect. Awesome. There, there you go. go. There we go. There's one, there's one thing on there, which is, uh, as you say, a video of me juggling. <laughs> and also, if you want to follow uh, J4G Designs, which is, uh, which is, which is Chris's uh, business that also uh, does a lot of the editing around this podcast as well, because that's great. Um, and for me personally, if you want to get in contact with me, um, I have a Facebook page, which is Ben Pegs Fencing. And on Instagram, I'm at Ben Pegs and the same on Twitter. That's Pegs with two Gs. So whoever thought it was funny to ask me that the day, they can get stuffed. Um, and I think that's probably about everything from us. Johnny, oh, thank on. you so much. What about Johnny? What about Johnny? How do people get in touch with John? Maybe you don't want I, to He doesn't want anybody to get in contact with him. Um, the poor man's so busy. <laughs> I, do you know, I'm, I'm one of those sad old people who my, um, I think my Instagram is um, Johnny Davis 6929, which I didn't even bother setting up a, setting up an address. So, you know, if anybody wants me, OlympicTM at BritishFencing.com. So OlympicTM at BritishFencing.com. But, you probably don't have nothing really that, that exciting. <laughs> but if I can help you, I'm here. Can I just say, you guys, can I just give a little bit back to you guys to say, well done, your resilience, your determination, your focus doing this through COVID. I think that if we reflect on that passion thing we talked about, and I think you have, I think you probably don't recognize it, but you have connected with a lot of people and kept a lot, particularly in the early days. I think people are maybe slightly more familiar with it now. But I think in the early days, it really resonated with people that there were people in the community who connected to their community. So, so for me, well done, really applaud, applaud your, um, your, your, your desire, your determination, your focus. It's been, I think it has been really appreciated by a lot more people than you probably think. A lot more people are aware of it than actually feedback because that's just the world we live in. But so from a personal perspective, that, that's my, I'd like to pass that back to you guys. Oh, thank you very much. That's very thank kind. You, uh, it was nice to hear. Very kindly. And thank you for recommending one of our other uh, podcast uh, members, Pal, Pal Zacharet. She was absolutely phenomenal. We learned so much from him. So I have some, good, I have some great stories there, which I'll tell you offline. So <laughs> Pally, the play, Pally the Playboy of Budapest. There were some good stories there. <laughs>
we were talking about music industry, what I used to do was, if you imagine, this is kind of probably hard for you kids to remember, but, you know, in Hungary, they had nothing. So what I used to do was I used to take vinyl. I remember like boxes of 25 albums to Pali and I'd give them to him and he would sell them and they were worth a fortune in Hungary. So he said he didn't pay for a drink in a nightclub for about five years. Because <laughs> I would yeah. So it, that, all that, again, the bartering thing was just perfect. So, yeah, he, he's, he's a wonderful, wonderful human being. Amazing. And thank you for that suggestion. It was it was spot on. So cool. Well, guys, I think that's everything from us. So thanks very much for, for listening and stay tuned for more. This is the Fenced In podcast. Thank you. Stay safe, everybody. Fenstin podcast has been created in association with J4G Design, your one-stop user experience agency for all things digital, websites, graphic design and technical support.